I would like for you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans. Uh, the book of Romans is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Rome, hence the name Romans. It's written in the late 50s. It's written in the late 50s. Well, you're turning there. Uh, let me share with you about where I'm going this morning. Last week, I preached a message entitled, New Year, Same Word. New Year, Same Word. Uh, the new year rolls around, and inevitably, there's all sorts of new things that come with the new year, and uh, new plans for the new year, and new, well, I'm going to try something new, I'm going to do something new, or whatever. A lot of uh, churches, it's really popular for them to do something, what they call vision casting, and the pastor gets up and does vision casting for the church for the new year, and it, it, it always weighs on me when I see these sorts of things because as God's people, we're not called to the, you know, to the shiny stuff. All that glitter is not gold. We mustn't give ourselves to new ways. We have been commanded to go with the same way. And so my message was about relying on the same old, same old. We are going to rely on the Word of God in the new year. It might be a new year, but we're not doing any newfangled things as it relates to the Word of God. Sunday in, Sunday out, over my dead body, we'll be doing the same thing, that is preaching the Word of God. In the evening service for Vespers last Sunday, the evening message was New Year, Same Prayer. And we talked about the power of prayer and the simplicity of prayer and why we pray and how we pray and how God has ordained in His providence to move through prayer. It's a new year and we're going to be doing the same old thing, preaching the Word of God and praying to God and relying in these fundamentals that He has given to us. So this is kind of a mini-series that's sort of impromptu in a way. I didn't go into the new year thinking about it, but because of things uh, in my feeds and things that weigh on my heart as I think about the church, I thought, Let's start the year with some same old, same old. Focusing and reminding ourselves on the same old ancient things that have been handed to us that we have been entrusted to carry. Because there is a temptation for many people as they see same old street versus, you know, change boulevard to take a turn and go down change. And then you find yourself generations down the line like, what, what the heck happened to that church? You see those condos there? Yeah, that used to be a church. Or, you know, you see so-and-so and his life and, you know, whatever happened to so-and-so? Well, he took a turn on Change Street and stopped relying on the simplicity of the foundations that have been given to us. Something as simple as coming to church on Sunday. Something as simple as when the church gathers, they should be preaching the Word of God. When the church gathers, this should be a house of prayer. So we've focused on preaching the word and on prayer. And this morning, I want to keep on building on this same old, same old. And I want to keep us as much as possible. And the elders of this church, we will labor in 2024 to keep us on the same old street and not get distracted by Change Boulevard. I've asked you to turn to Romans 1. Look at how Romans 1 begins. It begins with the Apostle Paul. And he talks about being set apart from the gospel. He writes, verse 7, to the beloved of God in Rome. Hence, Romans, because he's writing to a church in Rome. Called his saints, grace to you, peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verse 8 of the church in Rome. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. So what is the reputation of the Roman church? It's a strong church. They, their, their faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. People know 
about the church in Rome. Uh, later in this message, we're going to turn to the epistle of Corinthians. And the Corinthians were <laughs> known for some wild stuff. They were known for a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, sin and wild stuff that was going on down there. Not the church in Rome. I thank God your faith is being proclaimed right through, throughout the world. He, he, he writes here in verse 9 about the gospel of the Son and the witness of the gospel of the Son. He, he writes about his prayers in verse 10. He writes in verse 10 about how he wants to come to them. He writes in verse 11 that he longs to see them. He can't, he can't wait to be with them. Verse, verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I've planned to come to you. He, he wants to get to them. He's hearing all this good stuff. He's so excited for this. And why does he want to get to them? He speaks of imparting a, a gift to them, which is probably resources and, and a sharing of finances that are spreading around to the churches and what have you, as well as spiritual gifts. Why else does he want to come to them? Look at verse 15. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Wait a second, Paul. Didn't you say that they have the faith? This church is bomb.com. Everyone knows that the church in Rome is all about that gospel life. So, so you want to get up there to people who have the gospel. You want to get up there and preach the gospel to people who have the gospel? Y yeah. The same old, same old. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? The gospel isn't just for lost people. It's not just for the people out there. It's for the, the people of God. It's for the people in here. The gospel isn't the ABCs and 123s. The gospel isn't, you know, uh, learning to, to write your name or whatever, and then you move on to cursive and other stuff. I don't think they do cursive anymore, but whatever. You get the idea. It's not like, oh, well, that's kindergarten. Or as my granny would say, kindergarten is not kindergarten, and then now we're in high school and we've moved beyond, and we don't have to do, you know, uh, all that stuff because we've moved on. You see, no, the gospel is what the church is supposed to be doing, proclaiming, enjoying, heralding, not just to the lost but to themselves. Look at the next verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, in that culture, there was a divide between Jewish people and Gentiles. He says, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, what the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. We herald the gospel because in it is righteousness. We come on Sunday to hear the gospel. There should never be a point where someone is talking to you about a triune God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, and the, the, the Son who steps into creation because creation made a mess out of it and, and dies at the hands of creation in order to rescue them from a wrath and penalty they deserve. There should never be a place where we're like, can we talk about something different? You know, give me like five steps to, you know, being a better leader, or, you know, which is most of what pop preaching is today. We're going to have a five-part series on how to lead well. We're going to have a three-part series on how to, you know, win friends and influence people. We're going to have a, you know, and you say, where's the, where's the gospel? I show you the beginning of Romans because I wanted you to see uh, what I'm going to get at in this message. I wanted you to see just how, how biblically 
how biblical this concept is, namely that uh, this morning, the message I've entitled, New Year, Same Plan. Um, the plan in 2024 is the same. We are going to be preaching the gospel in 2024. Um, that's what we're committing ourselves to doing. The same plan. And, and, you know, people say, well, what are our plans for growing the church? What are our plans for filling empty seats? Uh, what are our plans for, you know, reaching people? It's the same old plan that has been passed down to us to preach the gospel. It's, it's going to be the same. And we're not taking a turn on Change Boulevard. We are going to keep on keeping on on same old street uh, preaching the gospel to God's people and to the lost. Move in your Bibles to the right. Move past uh, the gospel, the, the Romans, Romans chapter 1, and find your way into Ephesians, in the first chapter of Ephesians. Uh, this is written a little later than Romans, in the early 60s, and by the time Paul writes this, we see how unashamed of the gospel he is. The gospel has actually landed him in jail. So Ephesians is a prison epistle. It's like King's letter from a Birmingham jail. And just like King's letter from a Birmingham jail, so much of it is addressed to the church in, in America. In this case, Paul is writing from prison and he's speaking to the church of Ephesus. He's write, he writes actually several prison epistles. Ephes, uh, Ephesians is one of them to the church in Ephesus. Also Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those are also prison epistles. Now, now you have some context. Draw your eyes into the passage. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as Paul continues in this letter, he opens very similar to Romans, like, yo, what's up? It's me, Paul. Love you guys, or whatever. As he continues... In this text, he's going to go to the very beginning. In verse 4, he talks about before the foundation of the world. Do you see that in verse 4? So this brings us to the first point on the outline, creation to the cross. Paul begins his proclamation. Paul begins in his writings with creation. In, 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 in the beginning of it all, before the beginning of it all, draw your eyes at the text, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. So he goes back to the very beginning, to the creator, before the creation, when it's just the creator. He sees the creator and he speaks, A on your outline, Point one, creation to cross A. He speaks of the Creator's love. In verse 3, Paul begins with, Blessed be the God. Scholars note that the expression of praise in Hebrew is known as the barakah, where you begin with blessing. He, he does a barakah on the church of Ephesus. He barakahs, he offers blessing, and he praises God for what he has done through Christ, reminding the saints of what God has done. He, the gospel... And he starts the gospel with the beginning, before the beginning. What, before the beginning, what was going on there? Glad you asked. Inquiring minds want to know, I want to know. Verse 5 is going to let us know. Verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In love, he speaks of the creator's love. In love, God has made us beloved. He made us beloved. Look at chapter 2, verse 4, and we'll come back to chapter 1, so keep a finger on chapter 1, but chapter 2, verse 4, he says, 
in the second part of the clause there, because of his great love which, with which he loved us. He, he speaks before this clause of God's love, he speaks of God's mercy, reminding us that God's love wasn't due to us. We didn't have it coming. Now go back to chapter 1 where we left off. We left off at verse 7, and in verse 7 of Ephesians 1, we're hearing of God's love, but we're being reminded that we didn't have it coming. Verse 7 of Ephesians 1, In Him we have a redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Our trespasses. The word for trespass is paraptoma. It is a word that means uh, sin or error or moral wrongdoing. Paraptoma is a word in the culture when you heard paraptoma, it, it brought with it a vision of someone sliding off of, of, of a cliff. You know, something that would make it on TikTok where everyone's like, oh, dang, he really fell down that hole. You know, uh, Parks and Recs, Andy down in the hole. You know, he's just down in the hole. You're down there. You slipped. You fell down. You're down in the hole. Paraptomai. This is a way of describing, be on your outline, the creation's loathing. Paul reminds them of the Creator's love, and he reminds them that we didn't have it coming because of the creation's loathing. The creation is paraaptima. It is, it is falling down a cliff. Move from chapter 1 over to chapter 2, but keep a finger in 1 because we'll come back to it. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. Your paraaptima, your harmatia, which is the word for sin, you were dead in that. You didn't have love coming. You rebelled against the Creator who gave you love. As a result, there's paraoptima. All of creation is fallen and it's loathing against the Creator. Mind you, it tells itself it's spiritual. It tells itself it's fine. It tells itself it really loves God. But the God that it loves is not the God who is. You see, the God that men want and the God who is are not the same. So we have our figment of our own imagination gods that strangely look like us and strangely enable us to do what we want to do. Paul reminds them that's where you would be apart from his mercy. Dead in your trespasses and sins. Oh, and it's worse than being paraoptima, falling down a cliff. Down in that hole, there's a whole bunch of demonic darkness. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. Ephesians 2.2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The world is paraoptima, fallen, and the world is also under foreign forces of darkness. The devil, the prince of the air. Down in that hole, there's a whole bunch of satanic stuff going on. We're in Los Angeles, and so if you have your eyes open and no doubt in media feeds, you know, there's a lot of talk about Satanism in Hollywood. Uh, and there's interviews that are popping up left and right. You know, uh, I mentioned last week that, you know, the three-hour Cat Williams one, which the whole time I'm watching it, I'm just thinking, this is so funny because, you know, people listen to this for three hours, but a 30-minute sermon they just can't follow, uh, or let alone twice that much, right? I, we just can't follow it. But anyway, you know, Cat Williams and his interviews alluding to all this kinky and dark stuff that's going on behind the scenes, you know, and you're sort of like, you know, we, we see that in, in politics as well. We see it from Hollywood to D.C. There's all this darkness. Sometimes it's in your face. Sometimes it kind of moves behind the scenes, right? And it's sort of, oh, that's some kind of conspiracy or whatever. But then sometimes it pops out and it's very much in your face. 
I think in 2019 when Christian Bale accepted the Golden Globe's Best Actor and when he got up on stage and took that little Golden Globe and he got up in the microphone, do you recall what he did? He thanked Satan for giving, and I quote, me the inspiration for playing this role. The Church of Satan tweeted right after that, Hail Christian, Christian Bale that is, Hail Christian, Hail Satan, on the tweet feed. And then people are kind of like, whoa, whoa, I guess there's some stuff going on in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, you don't say? You're just getting a glimpse of it. Uh, a lot of this, too, is you know, sort of the rage-baiting of Christians, you know, where people rage-bait to get the Christians going or whatever. I think of uh, a, a while back, old little Nas and his video Montero, where he slides down the pole into hell and gives the devil a lap, a lap dance and kisses him and then, and then takes the throne of the devil and... You know, and they had the Nike shoe with the human blood in it and all this stuff. And everyone's like, dang, this is satanic, you know. And people are kind of, whoa, this is satanic. And, you know, uh, Dave Chappelle recently sort of mused, what's going on in the culture? When you, which is interesting, too, when you have secularist, fallen, crass comedians making observations like, hey, the world's really messed up. You don't say. What, what is this culture, Chappelle ponders in his most recent skit, of The Dreamer, that creates kids that dream of growing up and giving lap dances to the devil? Well, Paul said it in Ephesians, that you're walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul also warns in his Corinthian correspondence that the forces of darkness masquerade as angels of light. So you've got to be careful because sometimes they will come in the form of something that looks Christian. Which even recently, as of last week, speaking of little Nas, uh, now he's rage-baiting Christians on a different end because now he's dressing up in his newest video, J. Christ. He's dressing up as Jesus and he jukes the devil in a basketball play. And the rest of the video, he's you know, dressed up as a girl and it's like, what, what, dude, what is going on? Like, what are you doing? I mean... The music, if I can say, sucks. But, you know, why, why do you have to bring Jesus and the devil and do all of Jesus cosplay videos? Like, what, what is going on here? Paul says, I'll tell you what's going on. The world is paraoptoma. And down in that hole, there's a bunch of demonic darkness. And before the church gets uppity and, and, and wants to blame Christian Bale or Lil Nas or whoever else, Paul writes in verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived. We were down in that hole. In that hole, living for, verse 3, the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, who were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, skip down to verse 5, even when we were dead, verse 5, in our transgressions. We, we were down there too. The Christian faith is not a faith that points its finger at the darkness and says, look at how dark you are. It is a faith that says to the church, you would be there, but by the grace of God. How did God get us out of the hole? God the Father sent the Son, and the Son went in the hole of darkness. And He suffered in the hole of darkness as a crucified Lamb who gave His life for us. So we see in Ephesians 1-2 the message of the Creator's love, the creation's loathing. Next, we see the crucified Lamb. Go back to chapter 1. Ephesians 1, draw your eyes at verse 8 in the text, please. In verse 8, we read of what he has lavished on us. 
In all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view of the administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things on earth. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose who works all things under the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel... This is why we got to herald this message. Because as we saw in Romans 1, it is the power of God unto salvation. So we rehearse it. And in it we experience this power as God's people. And for those who are far from him, through the power of the gospel, he rescues them from the whole. The gospel, your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. It's worth noting that verse 3 to verse 14, if you have your own Bibles, you might mark it. Verse 3 to verse 14 in the original Greek text of this letter is one long sentence. So all you grammarians, you know, put that in your pipe and smoke it. You know, that, yeah, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, a run-on sentence. So maybe we should rethink some of our sentence structures. And the sentence is centered on the crucified Lamb of God who dies as a sacrificial lamb for his people. In chapter 2, verse 13, Paul speaks of the Lamb's blood. He speaks of the blood of Christ. That's sacrifice. In verse 14, he speaks of redemption. Apolutrosis. Redemption. Apolutrosis is a word that is used when someone is in a slave market and you come and you apolutrosis, that is you buy them out of the slave market. Manumission. Liberation. Abolition. You give them freedom. Metaphorically, in the Bible, sin is likened to slavery. And so here, using this word apolutrosis, he reminds them that the crucified lamb offers apolutrosis for those who were paraoptimi in the whole. He takes them out of the whole and he liberates them. That's redemption. Verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The lamb is in the heavens. I love in the book of Revelation where you have the lamb of God in the heavens depicted. Behold the lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. And the lamb is in the heavens. He opens the title deed of the earth and the lamb is identified with the Lion of Judah, the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. Here he speaks of the Lamb raising up resurrection. Resurrection shows that the payment of the crucified Lamb took. It worked. The transaction went through. I'll Venmo you. Okay, cool. Let me watch my phone. Wait till it... Oh, I got it. It went through. The transaction goes through. Resurrection shows it goes through. And then further, after the resurrection, he ascends into heaven. Look at verse 21. What's he doing up there? What is he doing up there? Verse 21. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and that every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come, he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is he doing up there? He's exercising his authority. He's seated above. He's over all things to the church, he says in verse 22, which brings us to the next point on your outline. We've discussed creation to the cross and now Christ to the church. Christ is over the church in the heavens right now. And insofar as I'm being faithful to his word, we can hear him speaking from the heavens to us through his word by the spirit. Christ over his church in the heavens speaking to the church through his word. 
Ephesians chapter 2, if you're in 1, turn over to 2, where Paul is reminding them that you were dead in your transgressions. But he has done what? Ephesians 2, 5, he has made us what? What does the text say? He's made us what? Alive. He's made us alive. He's given us life. So, point two, Christ to the church. A, the cornerstone's life. Christ's life is being given to us. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul describes Christ as the cornerstone. In the ancient world, a cornerstone was placed down first when you're going to... I'm going to start a new building. What do we need first? A cornerstone. And then off of that cornerstone, you start to build your walls. You see, you, when you're going to build something new, you start with a cornerstone. The cornerstone, Christ, he's doing something new. He has brought in the new covenant. He is building his people, the church. In, in the face of Israel rejecting Messiah, God is not done with Israel. In a, in a parenthetical split between the old and the new and the age that is to come, he has created a missionary community known as the church. And he's the cornerstone of it, building and preparing it to herald the message of the gospel, as we saw in Romans 1, to the Jew first and to the Greek. Verse 6, look at what Christ is doing, the cornerstone in his life that is flowing from heaven to the earth to his church. Verse 6, he has raised us with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us who are in Christ Jesus. You say, what is Christ doing up there? Well, he's head of his church. He's speaking to his church through his word by the Spirit. And guess what? It's not just Christ who is up there, but as our representative, he has actually seated us, verse 6, with him. There's a sense in which we're up there too, by way of the Spirit and union with him. We read of the cornerstone's life. We read of the conversion of the lost. Look at verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. That's conversion. You were saved. You were converted through what? Faith. And not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not of works. The cults will say, oh, you, you want to you be saved? Well, let me give you some stuff you need to do to be saved. You got to be baptized by us. You got to go through our rituals. You got to do this, think this, whatever, whatever, whatever. On and on the list goes. And if you don't follow the list, if you don't dot the I's and cross the T's, you're going to lose your salvation, which is no gospel at all. The gospel isn't about you meriting salvation, you maintaining salvation lest you lose it. The gospel is not like keys or your wallet, or your cell phone that you can misplace. The gospel isn't something given to you. It is something that is done to you. You have been saved. You've been forever changed. You've been converted. And it's not by your works. It's by the work of the Son and Him giving us His work in the place of our lack of work. You failed the class. But someone else says, I'll give you my A in the place of your F. And you say, that's, that's not fair. You did the work. I didn't do the work. I got the F. How is that fair? That's exactly it. It's not fair. So, so many today, when you talk about God punishing sin or you talk about a concept like hell, oh, that's not fair. Why would a God who's love send people to hell? Uh, that actually is fair. That's what we deserve. We've rebelled against the one who's given us life. We deserve life to be taken back and to be punished. What actually isn't fair is heaven, that anyone would go there. Because it's not what we deserve. So, so God rescues us through what the Son has done. What the Son deserves is given to us. Life, resurrection, ascension, power, righteousness, and, oh, and more. 
And, and, and then he enables us, after saving us, after washing us up, he enables us to actually do good works. The works flow from this. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. It works itself out. Draw your eyes at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. So he saves us and then he sends us out into the doing of good works. This brings us to the next point from the cornerstone's life, the conversion of the lost to the commission of the Lord. Jesus, when he was training his disciples, he's training them in the gospel and the word of God. He's training them to have compassion for the lost. He's, he's training them to seek to save the lost. He's training them to build what he's laying down, the cornerstone, and build this, this church that he's entrusted to them that has been handed down to us through the sands of time, which is why we don't want to take a, a, a turn on Change Boulevard. We want to stay on the same old, same old and keep building this thing called the church. And the church builds and grows through the preaching of the gospel, which is why our plan stays the same, relying on the gospel. When Jesus commissioned his disciples, we have it in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, Acts 1, John 20. He commissions them to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The church isn't just sent to go make believers, to get bodies in the building. The church is a community, a family, who is training disciples. And those disciples then go on mission. And their mission, their, their mission is to carry this message of the gospel. Verse 16, that he might reconcile them both. And Paul goes on from verse 11 to verse 15, talking about Jewish and Gentile dynamics. He talks about how the gospel, verse 16, reconciles them both in one body to God through the cross. And look at verse 17. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. From Christ to the church, we see to the next point on your outline that the church is called to confess. And if you would move in your Bibles from Ephesians to the left over to 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to reflect on some things in chapters 1 and 2. Uh, the letter to the Corinthians is not a prison epistle as uh, Ephesians was. It is uh, a, a one that is like Romans and that is written to a church, the church in Corinth, hence it is called Corinthians. It is written before the letter to the Romans, so it dates uh, in the 50s, as Romans does, and Ephesians in the 60s. And we see, you know, Paul, Paul hasn't changed. Whether you're in the 50s or the 60s, Paul hasn't changed. He's on that same old, same old. As you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, notice that it begins with God and his calling and his character. And then it moves, as we'll see in a moment, to mission, calling the church to confess him. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Hey, that sounded like Romans and Ephesians. Yep, yep. Verse 2, sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Verse 3 and 4, look at it. Paul speaks about the grace of God. Verses 5 through 8, we see God's perseverance of the saints alluded to. And then in verse 9, it is declared, look at verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And watch this, he then moves, he moves from sovereignty to service in this verse. And not just that, but God Almighty has entrusted us with a task of utter importance. You see that? He's entrusted us with a task of utter importance. This utter importance, this, this task that is given to us, this message for mankind is the gospel. Again, we were in Romans. I'll put it again in front of you. I serve with my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of the Son. We preach the gospel to you. We're not ashamed of the gospel. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul tells the 
righteous that the gospel is what compels us into service. And how we serve is by preaching. Preaching specifically that message of the gospel. With 1 Corinthians in front of you, note in verse 17 where he says, 1 Corinthians 1.17, that Christ sent him to do what? To preach the gospel. He specifies that that message is the message of the cross. Again, the crucified lamb, that's our message. There's a triune God who is a consuming fire that rightly judges sin, but instead is graciously chosen to place the judgment on the Son who became a man and died in our place, taking that judgment, rose from the dead, showing that the payment took, ascended into heaven where he is giving life to his church to carry the message. Creation to cross, Christ to church, and the called are called to confess. And we carry this message, we confess this message, we proclaim this message, and this message God uses, God uses to save. God uses to save. It's amazing that he would call us to do this, and it's amazing that he would choose us to do this. Um, I, I thank God that I'm not God, because when I see what God does, I often find myself going, well, I wouldn't do it that way. <laughs> I mean, why pick mortals, mortal men to do it, you know? Like, I would send angels to do it. I think they'd do a better job preaching the gospel. And then when they show up, they'd scare everyone and be like, whoa, you know, I, I, you know, do some crazy stuff or whatever. Why do it this way? As a boy, when we're at the playground, we're playing basketball or whatever, we start, we start by picking teams. You know, you shoot the hoop, maybe, uh, and whoever makes it goes on this side or whatever, or you shoot the hoop for who the captains are, and the captains pick the team. And typically what you do if you made the hoop and you get to be the captain, uh, you look out at your buddies on the, play, on the playground, and you're like, I'm, I'm going to take Jeremy Peterson. He can ball, you know. Uh, I'm, uh, Hassan will wait for last. You know, I'm, I'm picking the guys who I know can hoop because we want to win the game. I think of the Lord, there is a competition between good and evil in the earth, and God is choosing teams, and for his starting lineup, he picks us. There's powerful heavenly beasts, mighty angels, even God's own powerful self, the Spirit, right? Just have the Spirit hover over the creation like in Genesis 1. Of all the persons to pick, surely the Godhead of the heavenly realm you know, you know, just send the Spirit. Send, send the Spirit to come. You sent the Son to come. That was good. Why, just send Him back from the ascension, and, you know, He's the world's greatest preacher. Just let Him keep going. Right? But God picks a team, and He picks us. I think of the psalmist, what is man that you are mindful of him? When God picks teams, He doesn't pick the best. He actually picks the least. And the Apostle Paul starts to get into this in 1 Corinthians, which is going to remind us about our charge and caution us about our labels, which is A, under called to confess, the charge and the labels. What is the charge? The charge is to preach the gospel. And then he cautions them because there were divides in the church. Rome was known for being unified and great gospel. I'm hearing all kinds of good things. Corinth is known for shenanigans. Look at verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 1. Has Christ been divided? Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? A really serious wake-up call. You see, they had divides going on, and there were divides around uh, different particular personalities and what have you. Most notably, um, most notably there, there, there was one preacher who was a little better than Paul, and some people were, were following after him, and he's like, you know, what, what, what are you guys doing here? What, what is going on? Are you of Apollos? Or are you of Paul? Look at verse 14. He says, I thank my God that I baptized none of you. And Crispus and Gaius are like, oh, bro, you baptized that. Well, except for, you know, Crispus and Gaius. Uh, 
Verse 15, so that none of you would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I, I, I baptized some of the household of Stephanas. And those guys are like, yeah, why don't you name us? Uh, because of that, I, I don't know if I baptized any other. So, you know, to those who think you got to be baptized to be saved, Paul's like, yeah, no, you need the, the gospel to be saved. Baptism follows for those who are saved. Verse 17, for Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would be made void. On top of that, I wasn't sent to be a baptizer, nor was I sent to be an entertainer. The preaching of the gospel, this isn't an entertainment act. Don't, don't, don't get it twisted. This is not an entertainment act. We don't want to take the gospel and bling it out. Verse 18, he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We don't bling it out because it's inherently foolish to those who are down in the hole under the spell of the darkness. But to those who have been rescued from the hole and to those who he is rescuing out of the hole and converting them, it is, a po it is a power. It's power. Packed with power. So much time is lost on believers forgetting this reality, trying to make the gospel palatable, failing to realize that it is inherently unpalatable to fallen palates of sinful taste buds. We, we don't want to taste it. We don't want to entertain it. It's foolishness to, to us. Watch out for the labels, church. Apollos, Paul, whatever, whatever. Watch out for the labels. Get back to the charge. You took a turn on Change Boulevard, get back on same street. And with regard to this getting off track, Paul reminds them, B on your outline, that the clever are leveled. He writes about this cleverness of speech that people were getting into. The church was giving itself to entertainment. It's no wonder Corinth was a very entertaining town, and so the message had slowly fallen into getting blinged out. Now, Paul says that the message in and of itself to fallen ears, is foolishness. He uses the word moria, which is where we get our word moron. Uh, the, the gospel's moronic to people who are lost. It's, um, I, it's not PC to say it, but it's retarded. It's, it's moronic. It's, it's dumb. It's, it's handicapped. It's, it's, it's not right. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it is important to recognize that foolishness is in relationship to those who are perishing. He's not saying the message of the gospel is actually foolish. He's just saying to those who are in the darkness, that's how they hear it. In 1 Corinthians 4.10, he boasts, we are fools for Christ's sake. He's proud of it. I'm not trying to twist the message, change the message or whatever, so that, 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 that people are going to think that we're smart or likable or fit in or whatever. This is the danger in our culture with the alphabet police and the, uh, and the political correctness movements where you have to take the message of Jesus and you've got you to gotta make it fit with what the culture says is acceptable. Otherwise, you are going to be canceled. Paul says we're canceled for Christ's sake. We're fools for Christ's sake. Coming to church on a Sunday in our culture is foolish. You could be out fishing, studying for school, relaxing, sleeping in, working, youth sports, exercise, golfing. Uh, you could be out in the parking lot. You could come to church and just be out in the parking lot talking. Sitting in this room, listening to the Word of God preached is foolishness to uh, our culture. And when the culture says, what are you Christians doing to change the world? And we say, well, we sit in a room and listen to the gospel. And guess what? 
it's changing the world. They're going to go, that's, that's dumb. <laughs> that, that's your plan for 2024? Yeah, that, that's our plan for 2024. We're going to herald the gospel, and we're going to hear the gospel. We're going to celebrate it. Times have not changed from our day to Paul's day. Paul is confronting the church because they were relying on other things. Their plan for growing the church was to give it over into entertainment and licentiousness. The Bible says that it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah 4.6. The people grow and go by the power of the spirit. Years back, we were remodeling the church. We spent a lot of money on the church. Even recently, we just did a new parking lot update and some paint. And inevitably, when you're painting things or updating things, people will say, this is so good because, you know, you update it and then people will want to come because it looks nice. That's not how the church grows. We don't grow by making things look nice. Now, that's not to say that we can't have things that look nice. Um, you know, why, why, why can we have things that look nice? Because they're nice. It's just that simple. You know, it's like, oh, hey, we should get this for the church. Why? So we can trick lost people to coming. No, because it, it, I think it would look nice in, in that one room. We, we should paint this room. Why? We'll get people saved. No, no, you don't save people with paint. You don't save people with interior designers. No offense to interior designers. We don't save people with, you know, better websites and whatever. The plan for the church is to go in the power of the Spirit proclaiming the word. John 6, 44, Jesus said, No man can come to me unless the Father who has sent me drawn, draws him, reminding us that we can do nothing to save people and to grow the church. That's not our job. Our job isn't to grow the church. Our job is to proclaim the gospel. God's the one who grows his church. In the book of Acts, we read that when Lydia heard the gospel, look at this, Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. I can't open people's hearts. Only God can do that. And God does it through preaching. Romans 10, 14, how will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How they will believe in him in whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? The implication is simple. We preach and God saves. A few verses later in Romans 10, we read, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of Christ. Christ speaks through his word. Christ saves by his word. Just as God creates by the power of his word in Genesis, so too God saves by the power of his word. Hence, reliance on anything else is futile. Hence, it is a new year, and hence I'm emphasizing and reminding us that we are driving on same street in 2024. What's the plan to grow the church? The pandemic, you know, decreased the church a bit. What, what is the plan? What is the strategy? <laughs> Be faithful to the gospel. Love God, love people, preach the gospel, pray. The same old, same old. Some well-meaning Christians have forgotten Paul's words today, and they have tried to use marketing techniques to reach people for Christ. I'm not saying that there's not a place for good marketing or whatever, but we don't rely on any of those things for true revival or for truly growing Christ's church. I get magazines in the mail at the church at my office. This one particular magazine every year sends out a whole issue on the fastest-growing churches. And then you look up the churches, and you're like, oh, that's, let me listen to some of the sermons of the fastest-growing churches. You go, they're not preaching Christ crucified. They're not preaching God's word. Why are they growing then? Because they're not growing by the work that God is doing in the hearts. Anyone can get bodies in the building. Beloved, we must remember that our message 
is the gospel, and we must remember what our world thinks of it, and we mustn't be insecure teenagers about this, but to just be bold and say, you know, that's fine if you don't like me for it, but your problem is not with me, it's with God. You can't market a foolish product. You can't sell bottled water to people who are drowning. You don't sell ice to Eskimos. You don't sell hay to a farmer. You don't sell wood to a forester. You don't sell sand at a beach. You don't sell a cape to Superman. You don't sell religion to the Pope. You don't sell plastic surgery to Joanne Rivers, right? It's just, that doesn't, they already have all that. It doesn't make sense. Try to sell the gospel, that's foolish. Why? Because the message of the cross is foolish. And we need to be reminded of this lest we rely on something else. Because if you do that, you will be walking away for the very thing that is the power that God has given us to truly grow his church. Peter Jennings, to my knowledge, is not a believer. But in a video entitled The Name of God, Peter Jennings actually asked a thought-provoking question about the church in North America. And I quote, he says, As these churches try to attract sell-out crowds, are they in danger of selling out the gospel? Corinth was in danger of that. Look at the text, verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Rhetorically, Paul's asking these questions. He's very eloquently charging the church to trust the gospel to save, and he's sounding the alarm for those who are watering it down. There's a temptation to make the gospel sound good to people. Oswald Sanders once wrote, we must never confuse our desire for people to accept the gospel with creating a gospel that is acceptable to the people. Right? We want people to accept the gospel, but we can't water it down. Looking back on the first half of the 20th century, H. Richard Niebuhr famously described the gospel drift in America and the changing of the true message of the gospel to a message like this. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Such mentality exists today. Look at verse 21 in the text. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And that's why we don't save it. We, why we don't change it, that is. Because he saves through the message. So if we go, but people won't like the message, so we'll just, we'll just soften it up or whatever, just sand down the rough edges or whatever, then that's not going to have power. And you might make it in the magazine for the fastest growing church or whatever, but I would argue at that point that you're not a church. You're just a gathering of people who've come to hear someone who's gifted in oration. Paul speaks of God's power. Look at verse 26. He says, Consider your calling, brethren. Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Reminding them that when God was picking teams, he chose the weak things to shame the strong. Right? He chose, chose the weak things to shame the strong. A.W. Tozer wrote that if I see all right, the cross of popular evangelicalism is not the cross of the New Testament. It is rather a new bright ornament upon the bosom of a self-assured and carnal Christianity. The old cross slew men. The new cross entertains them. The old cross condemned. The new cross amuses. The old cross destroyed confidence in the flesh. The new cross encourages it. We look at the state of North America today. Most churches, the average church in, in our country has fewer than 75 people in it. Only, only 5% of churches in this country have over 350 people. 
You do the, the studies on the polls of the fastest growing ones, the biggest ones, the megachurches. The megachurches are being populated by folks funneling in from small churches. It's much like what Walmarts do to kill mom-and-pop department stores, what chain restaurants and groceries do to small family markets. But we must remind ourselves that large is not better. Overall, church attendance is not increasing despite these marketing ploys. Instead, we have pop evangelical religion that is void of the gospel. And in the last few years, with all the politics going on, many pulpits have been seized by the right and the left, and you go and listen, and you're like, is, is this, what, CNN with some Bible verses on it? Or is this Fox News with Bible verses on it? Like, what is going on? Consider your calling. And consider that your, your, your calling, your disposition before you were saved was lacking. You were weak. You weren't strong. You were foolish. You weren't wise. Um, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, Peter and John are preaching. And the text says, as they listened to them preach, the crowds understood, I quote Acts 4.13, that they were uneducated and untrained men. And they were amazed and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Right? These guys aren't scholars. How do they talk this way? This isn't to say that there weren't scholars. Paul, who was writing, was a scholar. I mean, he's a, he's a PhD intellectual giant. And yet Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything coming from ourselves. Our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of the new covenant. Look back at 1 Corinthians 1.27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Hey, why are you talking about me like that? <laughs> because you were in the hole, you were in the darkness. You were foolish. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. Verse 28, he chose the base things of the world and the despised things God chose the things that are not, that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Observe who we are, brothers and sisters. Our consideration is lacking if we don't remind ourselves of where we were. We were foolish. We were weak. We were base. And why does God do this? So that he may nullify the things that are. The Lord said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9.23, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. That is our boasting. That we're base, we're weak, we're foolish, and our glory is in the one who has rescued us from this. So God gets all the props. He gets all the credit. But by doing this, in verse 30, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification, verse 31, so, let, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling. My message, my preaching were not in persuasive words, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Conclusions, church. It's a new year. Lots of new things. New workouts, new diets, new stuff, new, 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 new. But again, we're not taking a turn on Change Boulevard. We're sticking on the same street. Paul stuck on the same street. And he called the church of Corinth, get back on that street. He wrote to the church of Rome who was on that street, I can't wait to get with you, to be on that street with you, proclaiming the gospel with you. We're going to stay on that street. He wrote to the Ephesians to remind them of the creation to the cross, 
of the Creator's love, the creation's loathing, the crucified Lamb. And he moves then in that beginning to move from creation to cross to Christ in the church to say, look at our cornerstone. Look at what He's doing. He's the one converting and He's the one who is commissioned. The, the, the cure for our loathing, the cure for our licentiousness is the Savior. That's who He's clearly pointing them to. I came to you and, I, and all that I did, I, I preached Christ crucified. And look at those churches exploding in the first century. By the 300s, the church, the church will have outgrown the Roman Empire itself. The Roman Empire itself would fall and the church of Jesus Christ would stand and continue to this very day. I've been geeking out watching the History Channel a lot and uh, you know, surveys on fallen empires. They're like, what happened to the Aztecs? What happened to the, these guys? What happened to the Vikings? What happened to the, you know, the, the samurai? What happened to the... And you know, it's like, oh, powerful. And then... And the gospel has been all, in all of those cultures, all of those places, saving samurais and Vikings and Aztecs and natives and Europeans and Africans, and, and it's still doing it. Because the problem of sin has always been the problem from the fall. And the only antidote for that is the Savior. And so we're fools if we preach anything other than Him. We see the cure for our licentiousness. We see the constant for learning. And Paul just keeps saying the same old, same old. Keeps saying the Scripture to the people. Rely on the Word of God. Not just the Word, but the Spirit. So the constant for learning is relying on the Scripture and Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, we read that for through Him we have access in one Spirit to the Father. In Ephesians 2.22, we're reminded that we're being built together into the dwelling of God in the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2.4, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of what? The Spirit and of power. We rely on the Spirit to save, not on gimmicks. Finally, the calling to landscape, serve and send. Ephesians 2.17, he came and preached peace to you who are far away. We think of the city of Los Angeles. It is filled with people who are far away. And yet, God is bringing so many people to this city. We have Facebook here. We have YouTube here. We have Microsoft here, Belkin, Google, Yahoo. People have called this particular area where we are the new Silicon Valley the valley is surrounded by broken neighborhoods, ruined by redlining, flight, school segregation, inflation, disparity, hurt, brokenness, violence, racism, confusion, greed, consumerism, ignorance. And we have the only message that can save all of that. Why would we preach anything different? Acts chapter 18, a final verse to look at. The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in that city. As we saw earlier in the text, before the foundations of the world, he's ordained those who he will save. He says, I have people in that city, and through the preaching of the gospel, I will call them to myself and I will save them. How will they hear if we don't go? How will they be saved if we rely on any other plan? And preaching the gospel isn't just going out on a corner and preaching it. It's, it's wherever you go, you're sharing this message. It's in your homes. It's with your kids. Kids act out. You know, kids do stuff or whatever. You know, it's like, I, I should put them in a different school. 
I, I should get them a different counselor. I should adjust their meds or whatever. It's like, there's not meds for sin, you know? God didn't send us out to be pharmacists. He sent us out to be heralds. Give your kids the gospel. There's problems in marriage. Oh, my, my wife, my husband, my this, my that. You know what the answer to that is? It's Christ crucified. It's Christ crucified. There's, there's problems in San Francisco, and there's problems with this, you know, this newsome guy, and there's problems with you know, this and that. You know what they need? They need the gospel. I think they need a swift boot in the rear, too, but, you know, but anybody can do that. There's lots of people who can swift boot. Again, earlier I referenced crass secular comedians. God is even raising up, you know, Balaam's donkey in this age, where you have radicals like Bill Maher that are going, hey, the culture's going too far with this, right? And you know what? Anyone can say that, but what they don't have is this message of the gospel. 2024, let's commit to having the same plan, relying on the same prayers, relying on the same word, relying on the same table as we come now to celebrate the same meal that Christians have been celebrating for 2,000 years now. We come in on the table as the picture of the gospel that you've heard proclaimed to you, of the one who was broken for us, of the one who shed his blood out for us. So we're going to have communion and we're going to sing praises to him. We are going to celebrate what we have heard, creation to cross, Christ to church, called to confess. We're going to celebrate that he is the cure. And we're going to commit ourselves to constant learning and, and our calling to this landscape in which he has placed us. If you're here today and you know, these things are new to you and you've yet to come to him, if I can be candid, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? I'll hear this sometimes. People say, you know, I'm thinking about committing myself to Christ. What are you waiting for? I'm, th I'm thinking about doing that. I'm thinking about giving. What are you waiting for? This is the greatest treasure on earth. What are you waiting for? Receive him. Be forgiven. You will never regret this. Let's come and celebrate the one who saves. Father, we thank you for your word. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. We come now to sing praises to you, the triune God of creation. And pray, O oh God, that this morning you would show us your mercy and saving in this room. And giving the saved in this room a heart of celebration for this plan that you've given to the church. Father, your son promised us that the gates of hell would not prevail against your church. And while the culture mocks us and we get marginalized and we get canceled, and we're still winning. Because it's not our work, it's yours. And it's not a numbers game. So even if your church just grew by one or two a year, it doesn't matter. Because it's about your glory and not ours. And so we boast in, in you and not in our plans and our might and our strategies, but in you and you alone. And we pray, God, that you would move in this time of communion and song to bless us, to give us what we don't deserve, your tender mercies and grace. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.